Let's continue working our way together through Mark's gospel. We come to chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, the transfiguration, which is also recorded in Matthew and in Luke. This simple version that we have here by Mark is so rich and wonderful and profound. Let me remind you that at the end of the passage last week, chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus spoke of some who were standing there who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it it has come with power. And one of the expressions of that kingdom coming with power we were about to read in the passage before us and a portion of that generation that will see it even in this experience. Let's pray together and then we will read. Heavenly Father, help the one who proclaims the word and all who hear the word. Help us to pour contempt on all our pride, to humble ourselves under the authority of God's word, to attentively, with our hearts and souls, listen to the Son of God revealed in this passage. May the word be proclaimed with truth, clarity, and passion but may no man be seen, no one but Jesus. And these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin with verse 2, Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. This is the Word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, we were challenged in last week's text to remember, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? and that there would come to the people of God and to the church 
the temptation to be ashamed of Jesus rather than to confess Him outright. The text before us continues to emphasize the wonderful uniqueness of Jesus Christ and why it is that He is the one that we must confess, should confess, long to confess as believers in the Lord Jesus. It is the uniqueness of Jesus that the church is in danger of forgetting and forgetting this to jettison Christianity right with that ashamedness of Christ. I well remember a report in the early 2000s on NPR. A young lady, well-spoken young lady, student at Davidson College, who expressed herself as a very spiritual person, who was brought up in the Presbyterian Church. And I assume that meant, of course, the PCUSA. She had taken a journey, however, to the East, and the foundations of her faith were shaken. And she tells of how she tried to pray, Dear God, but the words just wouldn't come after that. And now back at Davidson, she described herself as a pluralist Christian, and she blended Eastern mysticism with Christian worship there at Davidson. She said that she could no longer assert that Christianity is the only way. Now fast forward to the present, the mainline denominations are losing their membership massively because they have so accommodated to the culture as to be almost indistinguishable from the culture. Forgetting the uniqueness of Jesus, they no longer have a place for the uniqueness of the church. Now I've long pondered the correspondences between the New Testament era and our own. Both were thoroughly pluralist, but Christians were not sent to the lions because they claimed that Christianity was one of many ways to God. What has always characterized true expressions of the Christian faith is the insistence upon the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, His deity, His incarnation, His cross, His resurrection, His person, His work. And that is what Mark is all about. That's what he's concerned to communicate and really is the theme of the entire New Testament witness to Christ. And this event, this transfiguration event that we have just read in Mark's gospel is again the insistence upon the uniqueness of Christ that happens six days after Peter confessed, thou art the Christ. And six days after, there in chapter 8, the Lord Jesus gives his first overt teaching regarding his passion and crucifixion and resurrection that is to come. Now why? What's the connection? I think that will become very obvious as we move on. So when we come to this transfiguration event, the first thing that we want to, to see is the transfiguration of Jesus is a revelation of the uniqueness of Jesus. It is a revelation of Jesus' uniqueness. Now that uniqueness has been stressed since verse 1 of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And immediately in the very opening verses of Mark's gospel, there is the teaching that Jesus is God. 
To be the son of God means of his essence, and therefore he is the second person of the Trinity. To be the son of God means that he is himself God who became man. And that uniqueness was stressed in chapter 8, as we saw last week, in the confession of Peter, thou art the Christ. And that uniqueness is now stressed in this unusual occurrence on this day of transfiguration. How does this event reveal the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? Well, will you notice, first of all, that it takes place on a high mountain. Now, why is this significant? Putting this fact with the two heavenly visitors, we remember that Moses on Mount Sinai and also Elijah on Mount Horeb were shown a vision of the glory of God. And that's what's happening here. A vision of that glory is now shown to the inner circle of the disciples. And when Jesus is transfigured, literally the word is metamorphosis. When this metamorphosis took place before the eyes of Peter and James and John, his appearance was altered and something of the splendor of the age to come and of the power of the consummated kingdom is displayed so that his clothes were whiter than any launderer on this globe could have made them. And Elijah and Moses, the two great prophets of the law, appeared. And that verb that is used here for appear in the Greek New Testament means something objective. This is not just a vision. They actually appeared. These two great prophets of the law that appear with him and converse with him in his approaching departure, for Luke tells us that's what they were talking about, his upcoming death, a cloud covered them. That cloud, of course, representing the presence of God, as we see in many places in Exodus chapter 6 and other places, the cloud representing the presence of God, and out of the cloud is a voice. No wonder Peter was terrified. They are seeing Jesus as he will be seen when he returns. They are seeing him as you will see him when he comes again. They are seeing him as the God-man, glorified, risen, ascended, and reigning. The glory that Jesus has with the Father, had with the Father, before all worlds is now manifested before their eyes in his incarnate but exalted state. They are seeing this before their very eyes. This is what they see. And then also take into consideration the, the glory, that is the brightness, where you know glory can mean various things, but one of the things that the word glory means is brightness. And it brings to mind the glory of God displayed in the Old Testament, the brilliant light of many texts that come to mind in the book of Exodus and in Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of Man passage and all the way to Revelation chapter 1 in which our Savior is described in very similar terms. And so, the transfiguration answers the question, do you know who Jesus is? Peter, do you know who Jesus is? You have confessed that he is the Messiah, but now let's go more deeply into that confession. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the God of glory. He's the mediator in whose hands all authority have been placed for the redemption of his people. 
He's the son of man of Daniel chapter 7. The Messiah was just confessed by Peter, but now the transfiguration makes it clear that Jesus is the Messiah who is God in the flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It is veiled after he comes back down the mount, but this is who he truly is. Now this is astonishing. It is truly astonishing that he has taken humanity. He is the second person of the Trinity, the majestic God who has taken humanity into union with himself. And this is how we can know that we can know God. You can know that you can know God because God became man. And he can say to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You can know God because God became one of us yet without sin. So there Jesus stands talking with Moses because he is about to inaugurate the second exodus through the cross and resurrection, delivering his people from their bondage to sin. And he talks with Elijah, regarded as the forerunner of the end of time, and the whole event announces that the fulfillment of the ages has arrived. But it will come at great cost. Moses and Elijah were wilderness prophets who suffered greatly. The kingdom will come as the suffering servant of the Lord is rejected. And so Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that he was an eyewitness to his majesty on this day when he beheld Jesus transfigured. It was a unique revelation of the glory and the majesty and the wonder of the Son of God. Now, a unique revelation of the Son calls for a unique approach to life. And that's the second thing, a unique approach to life. And we can get at this by noticing a couple of things in the text. First, Peter's response to this strange event there in verses 5 and 6. Look at these verses again. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter thought that the Feast of Booths had arrived. It was being fulfilled. In other words, that the Sabbath rest for the people of God has arrived in this transfiguration experience. But Peter... Have you already forgotten what Jesus said in chapter 8 when he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again? Peter, have you forgotten the description of the Christian life that followed? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me do not be ashamed of me when the temptation comes. Peter, have you forgotten these things? Peter wanted to leap right over the suffering into the glory. He wanted to remove himself from the suffering of the Christian life 
right into the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. Now hold that in your mind. As we look at a second way that we see the unique approach to life that is demanded by the uniqueness of Jesus, which is to pay attention to the discussion between Jesus and the disciples after the transfiguration on the way down the mountain. In the discussion, it is apparent that the disciples are perplexed because they still do not understand the mission of Jesus in this world. And Jesus helps them to see that Elijah must come. Of course, that is John the Baptist who fulfilled that. And just as John suffered, so must he. Verses 12 and 13. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written, the son of man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Jesus' mission will only be understood after the resurrection, which is why in verse 9, he tells them not to tell about the transfiguration until he had been raised from the dead. Now, we can glean from all of this a very important principle for Christian living from Peter's response and from the discussion on the way down the mountain. What is it? What is it we can glean? What is it that we should notice about life, the Christian life, from what he tells them here? Well, Peter and his disciples didn't at this point understand that the way of the Christian The way of the Christian life, the way of living for Jesus, is the way of the cross. That that when we come to know God as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become conformed to the image of Christ in what Paul calls the fellowship of his sufferings and conformity to his death. There are two ways that you know God. You know him by going to his word, learning about him. You go by reading great books that help you to understand the scriptures. You learn about who God is, about his revelation, about these things. Now that's essential. It is absolutely essential. And that also can be life transformative if indeed you are reading the word and submitting to its authority. But there's another way. That is to take these things that you learn from God's word and actually to go through suffering and hardship and difficulty. Then you come to take those things that you know about God and apply them to your heart and to your life. That is the way of the cross. That the disciples did not understand. That Peter would avoid. Now, are we tempted to forget this? When we forget we still suffer. We can forget this truth, and yet we still will suffer in this fallen world, but our lives become consumed with getting out of the suffering rather than knowing God in the suffering. Then the way of God seems strange to us, and we say things like, how can he really love me if he's putting me through this? Or how can he bring this thing on me? I don't understand. Or Perhaps you say, maybe I just lack faith. But in any case, when we forget, it becomes all about me. And what Christ wants us to see is that it's all about 
him. People of God, the cross precedes the crown. That was true of your Lord, and it is true of us as well. Glory comes after humiliation. The character of Christ is drawn deep into our hearts through suffering Christianly. Now, Peter did come to understand this, and you might remember how he puts this in 1 Peter, for example, the fourth chapter in verse 12, when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Some of the themes of the eighth and ninth chapters of Mark's gospel are heard in those verses in which Peter had come to understand the way of the cross leads home. Let me put this a different way. The great Christian doctrine of adoption that we find in the New Testament, that we find in Romans chapter 8 and other places. The Westminster Confession summarizes the biblical doctrine when it says that adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. But let me ask, does our catechizing include as one of the indispensable benefits of Christ's atonement conformity to Christ through suffering? Dr. Gaffin said, until Christ returns, the comprehensive mode of our enjoying all those privileges of adopted sons is suffering with him. Did you hear that? The comprehensive mode of our enjoying the privileges of adoption is through suffering with Christ. There are few truths which the church down through its history has been inclined to evade. There are few truths which the church can less afford to evade. Only the Christian can live this way, joyful in the midst of suffering because he finds fellowship with his Lord joyful in suffering because the believer lives in view of the inheritance that awaits us. It teaches us to embrace the life that God has given us as the one that he really has for us, not with stoic resignation, but with an inner joy. Don't, people of God, don't always dream for something different, for something other, and miss God where you are. Because where you are in the midst of the troubles that you're facing is where you meet him and know him and learn more about your own heart's needs and learn more about his love and his care and his, his fatherly disposition to you and the omnipotent compassion that, that he has for you. The, the older saints here can tell you this. They know this is true. They've been through it time and time and time and time again, and they will say, how have I come to know God? I've come to know Him personally, deeper and deeper and deeper in the troubles of life. 
because our suffering, small and great, is suffused with the power of Christ's suffering, because our suffering, small and great, is suffused also with the power of his resurrection, we find that life is now Christ-centered and self-centeredness is being progressively put to death. You know, I saw my father without complaint or comment, give up things that he loved to do so that he could be near my mother every day who suffered greatly in the last 20 years of her life. I just saw Christ, self-centeredness being crucified, dying. So truly the uniqueness of Jesus does call for a unique approach to life, does it not? A life of discipleship, a life of conformity to the image of Christ, a life that participates in Christ's sufferings, not because our sufferings add anything to his once-for-all completed atonement, but because it grows us in Christ's like character and it looks forward to sharing in Jesus' glory which is what is being revealed here in this passage. This forward-looking characteristic in the midst of my suffering, Christ is coming again. I have a, an eternal inheritance. I have the promise of the resurrection. In the midst of our suffering, the believer learns to hold on to that hope and to those promises, looking for the return of Christ, I think may be the characteristic that we most lack as Christians today. What about you? Does that need to change? Do you see how this will help you in, in the hard times to be joyful in the inevitability of suffering in this present age when your focus is not on the suffering but on the God who is with you in the suffering and the promises of God's Word that lead you to the everlasting glory that He has prepared for you through his cross and resurrection. Now, we see the third thing. The uniqueness of Jesus brings something else. It also brings a unique message, a unique message. Now, what we have here in the Transfiguration, as Calvin summarized, is a temporary exposition of Christ's glory. Later, the disciples would look back and say, who were we with after the resurrection? The resurrection that was anticipated in this experience will help them to understand that Jesus stands at the very center of eschatological expectation and hope. And in the end, verse 8 tells us, Elijah was gone, Moses was gone, they saw no man but Jesus only because he is such a person that our entire universe must revolve around him. And such a unique and wonderful person brings with him a unique and wonderful authority and brings with him a unique and wonderful message. Now, the Apostle Peter speaks of that message. He does so in 2 Peter in chapter 1. I'm going to read these words to you, and please notice he's talking about, all the way here in 2 Peter, in his epistle, he's talking about the transfiguration. He's remembering it. 
And here's what he says in 2 Peter 1.16 and following. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, he's talking about the transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, He's remembering that day. And in the command, verse 17, this is my beloved son, hear him. We can see a connection with the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. One is not just arithmetic. Yes, it speaks of the unity of the divine essence as over against the polytheism of the day. It means something more than that, though. It speaks of the immeasurability of the uniqueness of God, His incomparable uniqueness. As we read in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8, against the backdrop of the polytheism and pluralism of his day, that Jesus is the only Lord. This unique message comes from a unique source. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter heard God speak from the Mount of Transfiguration. And without much comment on that rich passage in 2 Peter, which would be delightful to do, let me simply say that Peter is saying this, I saw him, I was a witness when God affirmed his son from the cloud, but you hear him through this word. How do you hear the Son of God? Through the prophetic message, through the Word of God. When Jesus ascended on high, he left two things. He left his church, and he left a complete canon. That is to say, he sovereignly oversaw the writing of the New Testament books and brought the canon to a conclusion. Recognized by the church because of its self-attesting nature, 66 books written by 40 individual writers over nearly 2,000 years, and there is one unified message, and that message says to us, here is Christ, hear Him. Just as clearly as did the voice from the cloud on the day of transfiguration. So how do we hear Him now? We hear him when you hear him, 
when you read the Holy Scriptures. You hear Him when you have an open heart to hear the Word of God proclaimed when we gather on the Lord's day. You will not get God's Word. You will not get His inerrant, infallible interpretation of life. You will not hear of God's Son in the world religions or from philosophy or from nature worship. There is a unique source, and that source is God Himself and His Son who has given to you His Word. And in that unique source, there also is a unique message And two of the great themes that are fundamental to that message are mentioned for us in this chapter of Scripture. In verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? The unique message of the cross of Christ. That message, that message of the cross, can you hear it enough? Can you get enough of it? Can you not see the glory of the cross? Despised by the world, it is the substance of your faith. It is the diamond pivot upon which your life settles. It is the message we have to preach. It is the essential truth that governs our lives, our homes, our marriages, our relationships. And then there's this message about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, already brought up these two things in chapter 8, brought up here, brought up several times throughout chapter 10 of Mark's gospel. But he says in verse verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising of the dead might mean. And so it is the resurrection that is anticipated by the glimpse of Christ's glory at the transfiguration. And the transfiguration and the resurrection to which it points is an anticipation of the regeneration of the entire fallen created order. That's the power of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now there are many people who study the New Testament with an unbelieving bias who see Jesus as a zealot, or an apocalyptist, or simply as a rabbi, or in some other way. But all have in common the thought that Jesus was not raised from the dead. But that view hits full tilt the brick wall of history. Who changed the dejected apostles into joyful missionaries for the gospel, willing to give their lives for Christ? Who changed Paul from a Christ-hater to an apostle of his name? And so you must wrench the book of Acts, especially, right out of history to deny the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul Barnett, Australian New Testament scholar, It is only by removing the acts of the apostles and letters of the apostles that such humanistic versions of Jesus can be constructed. It is quite unhistorical simply to assert that the early Christians many years later superimposed on this man who was crucified and buried, we know not where, the belief that he was somehow to be worshipped as Lord. That, Barnett says, is to equate the rise of Christianity with the birth of the Elvis cult. Here, 
the writings of Paul are highly significant. And this is true. No, Jesus died for sinners. This is the message highlighted here. Jesus rose from the dead. This is the message that was foreshadowed here. And with his death and with his resurrection comes the call of God, the imperative, the command of God. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear Jesus. So, do you remember that young lady at Davidson College? I wonder where she is now, if she's living. Has she come to know the Lord? Does she understand that her perspective was, was so sub-biblical, unbiblical? She concluded that the way to relate her faith to world religions was to become a Christian pluralist. And much that calls itself Christian today is hardly distinguishable from the culture around us. And this is where cultural accommodation always leads. And men do not like the infallible book because it calls them away from their own human autonomy. It points to the great white throne where the books will be opened. And it says that outside of Christ you are lost. And the Bible is true, and men outside of Christ are lost. And the professing church, rather than hearing Him, so often today, the professing church waters down the message, accommodates to culture, and it becomes, over time, virtually indistinguishable from culture. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a sermon on Genesis 24, and he said, the moment the church says, I will be as the world, she has doomed herself with the world. But what does the New Testament teach us? The Greco-Roman world in which the Christian faith was first proclaimed was full of pluralists and pluralism and eclecticism. It was a world of philosophers, a world of Stoics and Epicureans. It was a world filled with animists and occultists and temple prostitutes, and even the worship of Octavia, the Caesar of Augustus. They didn't care how many you had in your pantheon as long as you didn't say, here is the one Lord rather than Caesar. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 8? For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. There is one Lord, and that is Christ. And if you do not know Christ, the call comes to you this morning from his messenger. Hear him. Hear him. We are fallen. Our minds are inherently biased against God. We do not want to hear him. Sinners apart from God's grace do not want to hear him. What happens when you have a relationship with someone and it's a hard relationship and perhaps um, you see it as a hurtful relationship? Well, you try to avoid that person, 
Now, I'm not talking about Christian ethics here. I'm just saying that's the tendency of fallen human nature. We avoid that person on a great, greater scale. Because we have rebelled against God, we have turned from his truth, we have turned to ourselves, we don't want to have anything to do with the true and living God. We'll come up with our own ideas of God. We'll love that God, but the God of the Bible, the God of grace and glory, the God of truth and light, the God who is infinite, eternal, the God who is just, who will judge the world through his son, Jesus Christ, we don't want that God. But nonetheless, the call comes hear him, hear him, hear him. If you do not hear him, it will be to your eternal loss. So you may say, Pastor, our church is not following the fashions. Well, that's right. We're seeking to honor our Lord. We're seeking to preach his word. The whole fourth, the cross, and if the world passes us by or persecutes, we know that God's truth will win that God's purpose will not be altered, that those predestined will be saved and will be saved no matter what the world thinks or says or does. And we speak with respect to those with whom we differ, but we in faithfulness to our Lord and in love to the souls of men say, there is only one Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son, hear Him. So I've asked myself the question, where do I, as a believer in Christ, need to hear him? And I've not been listening. Look at your life and look at your heart. What is that pet sin that you may be holding on to? What is that, that, that thing that has hold of your heart that you, you know that if you, if you, if you hear him, He's going to say, that has to go. Where do you need to hear him for your service to him? Where do you, in what part of your life do you need to hear Jesus? And so I say to you, people of God, hear him. He is greater than all the prophets. His suffering, death, and resurrection means that he is the one to be heard through whom alone we can have life. He is deity. He is God, the second person of the Trinity who became man, who went to the cross, who rose from the dead. He is worthy, the only one worthy that we ultimately hear and submit to his authority, hear his teaching, hear his call, hear his demands, always in all things, always in all things, let's be determined to help one another to hear Him. To hear Him. You know, I, I can't save a soul. I can't change a heart. I often have to go to the Lord. Lord, I'm so concerned about this person or that I, I can't, but I know the one who can, and I'm preaching him to you. See no man, see Jesus. Hear him. Hear him. Hear him in the word that I hope you are reading every day of your life. Hear him in the word that is preached and proclaimed. 
Do not hear the siren calls of the world. Young people, do not hear the siren calls of the world telling you you can blend your Christian faith with the things of this world. Do not hear those calls. Rather, young people, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him who continues to speak in and through his infallible word. Amen and amen.